obviously this pandemic is going to last forever, right? And <laughs> it so, is. Is that, is that what you said? Obviously, it's going to last forever. <laughs> what are you talking about? Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place. So Tyler, this has been a just an incredibly odd and harrowing season of COVID. And I think more and more people are learning about what bioethics is during COVID maybe than at least any time that I can remember. So tell me a little bit about how you've been a bioethicist during COVID. What have you been doing? It's been, like you said, it's been a really strange couple of months. You know, in the past, whenever I get asked what I do, it's kind of a struggle to explain in a, in a kind of concise way that doesn't completely depress people. Because, you know, doing clinical ethics, a lot of the questions that we get are about life and death and uh, severely ill people making kind of the worst choices of their lives. Please don't depress us. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's been a number of number of times in social settings where my my wife has given me the you don't have to go into that much detail look. <laughs> but during the pandemic, I think these questions are kind of in, in front and center in everybody's faces, right? Because COVID is such a transmissible disease, the likelihood that somebody you know is going to get it is very high. And when the question is about ventilators and about whether this person gets a ventilator or that person gets a ventilator, I mean, that's an inherently bioethical question that everybody's kind of struggling with. And then later questions about who gets medications and who gets treatment and who gets you know, vaccines that are coming out. I've been having a lot more in-depth, detailed conversations with family members and, and kind of casual acquaintances since, since the mm -hmm. lockdown, since the pandemic started. How about you, besides having a human being? Right. So a human being came out of me. So that was a pretty big thing that happened to me during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the other thing besides, and I know you do this too. So these kind of statewide meetings we've been having with other clinical ethicists around the state where we're trying to coordinate triage policy. That's been super interesting to listen to. And somehow I got on a list of bioethics experts for media people to call. I've been fielding questions from reporters who've been wondering both about particular cases that have come up, but also in general, what sorts of ethical issues are coming up in COVID. And I at least did not expect that. Somehow I became the expert at something, not that I'm not an expert, right? Like I know what I'm talking about more or less, but I don't know that I expected that. So figuring out how to talk to the media about these things too has been a really interesting change. It's because you have such a beautiful radio voice. Do you think so? Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so here's another question about the pandemic, Devin. Mm -hmm. uh, where have you been working from? So I've been totally working from home. I had been working in one of our local hospitals, but when everything started to shut down, I was very pregnant and about to give birth anyway. So I started staying home just for my own self. So I have been at home basically since March. I rarely leave the house. How about you? Yeah, mostly in my basement. There's a couple of times I've been able to go into the office and, you know, exchange the the books that I have on my shelf and check my mailbox, but almost exclusively from home in my basement. Yeah, and I'm looking at your basement right now. 
What a sad state. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, it's a disaster. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Today, we're talking with Dr. Matthew Winia, who's the director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado. So Dr. Winia, we always ask the same question to begin our episodes. Do you consider yourself a bioethicist? And before we went on, on air here, uh, we were joking about this, that uh, my, my hunch is most of the people you interview don't say uh, yes to that question. Most of the people in bioethics who've been in bioethics for more than, I'm going to say 12 years, maybe 15 will not have had formal training in bioethics, which makes it hard to call yourself a bioethicist, even though you know, I've run an institute for ethics in healthcare since the uh, late 90s. But really, during the time that I was in training, there weren't bioethics training programs. And so it was almost, a, it's been a joke for 15 or 20 years that most of the people in bioethics don't have training in bioethics. So my, my guess is that other people answer the same way I do, which is, well, kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm a bioethicist. <laughs> that is totally how they answer. Yeah. yeah I've, I mean, I've never done a bioethics master's because they didn't exist when I was doing a master's program. So, you know, my master's is in public health. Well, Tyler and I actually have PhDs in bioethics. So there we're even, even like above that. In the stratosphere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was riding the bus to work one day when I was at UCLA, and I was ex trying to explain to somebody who was sitting next to me who uh, was asking what I did about what ethics was. And she said, well, are you hiring? And I was like, well, I'm, first of all, I'm a postdoc fellow, so I'm not hiring anybody. And she said, because my son is unemployed, but he's the most ethical person I've ever met. Yeah. And so... <laughs> Yeah. And the early days, you know, the early days, I would say, and to some extent, this is still true. There are a lot of hospital ethics committees that are functionally run by someone in the hospital who was just widely recognized as a good person. And so that's who runs the ethics committee. It's not a terrible thing for a field to get started by collecting together, you know, the people whom everyone seems to agree are good people. Um, that's, that's not a tragedy, but there is a knowledge base and training that is pretty useful in this field. And to the extent that many of us were sort of self-taught in that knowledge base, you know, it will get better over the next decade compared to the last decade, I'm sure. I'm not so sure, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so your training is in medicine. Yeah, my, my training is in medicine and public health. Okay. I mean, I'm a philosophy major as an undergrad, <laughs> so... <laughs> That's my bioethics training. So how did you get into bioethics? So you run a center now and you're a previous oh. uh, president of ASBH. So how did you get into this? Yeah. So when I was doing, I did a fellowship training in health services research and infectious diseases. But the guy that I was training with, uh, sort of my mentor at the time was a guy named Harry Selker. And Harry is a general internal medicine. And he was involved in a big group called the Society for General Internal Medicine, uh, which I'm still involved with today. Um, and SGIM had, a, he was the editor of their newsletter. And the newsletter would go out once a month along with their journal, which is a pretty good journal that, you know, is well-respected. And so the newsletter mails with the journal and is sort of what's going on in the society, right, in SGIM. And he asked me if I would be willing to edit or write um, an essay for each issue of this for a year. So one essay a month for a year. 
And I said, what do you want me to write on? And he said, you can write anything you want. I'm going to call this the residents and fellows corner. And you can write anything you think would be interesting to people in training. And so I got to write, you know, an essay a month for a year. And at the end of the year, I looked back and every one of those essays was about some kind of a moral dilemma in health policy or medical practice. And I looked at that and thought to myself, wow, that must be what I'm really interested in since when given complete free reign, that's what I ended up writing about. And then one of the people who read these, had read some of these essays um, was starting the Institute for Ethics at the American Medical Association, Linda Emanuel. And Linda called me up and said, would you interview for a job here? And I said, I'd be happy to interview, but I'm pretty sure the AMA won't let you hire me. And we met in Atlanta and uh, for the interview at the at the AMA meeting at an interim meeting of the AMA, and that was how I got into bioethics. And I was I was quite certain I would be in the Institute for Ethics for maybe a year or two, and then I would get fired, and I would go on to my academic career. And I I was there for 18 years. So now you're at uh, University of Colorado's medical school. And one of the specializations or one of the areas of, I think, excellence coming out of Colorado is the medical humanities work. And so can you talk a little bit about the intersection between bioethics and medical humanities or health yeah, humanities? Yeah, absolutely. Health humanities and bioethics. And, um, and I'll also just uh, drop in that our center is actually not part of the medical school. We're a university center. And one of the things that attracted me to the center was its work in interprofessional education. So the center uh, provides programming for the nursing school, the pharmacy school, the PT school, the PA school, right, as well as the medical school, the dental school. And in, and in many cases, we're providing educational programming for all of those together. So we have dental students and nursing students and medical students and PA school students and PT students all in the same room. Well, <laughs> these days, of course, we're all on Zoom together. But that, to me, was a fascinating part of the work. And Tess Jones, who runs the program in medical humanities here in Colorado, you know, was an old friend and a great colleague. And so the opportunity to come and work with her was was a huge draw. So one of the things I think uh, the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities you know, always has as a kind of productive struggle, I think, is how to pay adequate attention to both folks who are primarily bioethicists and folks who are primarily in the humanities. And there are a number of sort of bridge specialists within ASBH. So this would be the historians of medical ethics, for example, or people in religious uh, ethics groups, right? Which really, they're really in the, in the space between strict bioethics and strict humanities. So I think that this is a really necessary blending. I can't imagine a ASBH without having both a strong humanities component and a strong bioethics component and strong components in the center that hold those two together. Because there's a lot of the work that we do in healthcare that actually can't be fully analyzed using the tools of ethics. The work that we do the, is, is in some ways the stories that we tell. So that's, that's both. You can't, you can't separate them apart in, in the real world. I think in our academic silos, it's possible for us to separate. But it's not productive or helpful usually. Um, and in the real world of you know medical practice, of public health practice, of of research, 
the things where we see the ethical issues arise, once you get to actual implementation of you know, your careful ethical analysis, it's humanity's work. That reminds me of a quote that in my mind, uh, Martha Nussbaum said, but I've never been able to verify this. The quote goes, some truths are best expressed through the humanities, but many truths are only expressible through the humanities. I think that's kind of what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of the work of healthcare is inherently humanistic. It's also inherently scientific. It's also, you know, so it is amenable to scientific analysis. But when you try to blend analytic and action to sort of do the right thing, that that requires both ethical analysis and humanistic understanding. Matt, I think I'm appreciating right now just the incredible scope of what you do. The physician side of things, the bioethics side of things, the health humanities side of things, the public health. Is that too many things to think about at once or how do you manage to do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, thank you. That, that's really kind of you to, to say that. I don't I don't think it's actually that unusual. And, it's, and it becomes less and less unusual if you've been doing the work for 20 years, right? So you will have had the opportunity over 20 years to do things in theater and the arts and to do things in you know philosophy and analytics and in clinical care. And I don't know who first used the metaphor of orchestrating a life, but I like that metaphor much better than balance. To me, things like work-life balance, that is, it's not exactly a false dichotomy, but it's an unnecessary or, or a not very useful dichotomy when the reality is that what you're striving for is orchestration. And it's not just two things. So if you think about it as an orchestra, you know, there are horns and there are woodwinds and there are strings and percussion, and they all take a solo sometimes and take a backseat other times, um, but they don't ever really go away. They don't leave. They're always there and they have different roles to play. And I, I, and I feel like that's what we all try to do actually in our, in our lives is find ways to harmonize or if there's disharmony to make it a productive disharmony right? Which that exists in music as well. I try to balance these things, but balance in the sense of orchestration rather than in the sense of it's a scale, you know, and there has to just not be too much weight on this side of the scale or the other side will go flying off. What's interesting about that is I haven't thought about this until you mentioned it, but, but the idea of a scale means that those two things are in opposition, mm -hmm. right? Where, where right. I found a, a lot of synergy in the work-life balance. So to quote Martha Nussbaum, I want to talk about something else. Is that what is that what Martha Nussbaum said all the time? Yeah, she says it all the time. Yeah. Let's just break in here. I want to talk about something else. <laughs> uh, so I've heard you've been doing a lot of work right now on COVID. I mean, I think everyone in bioethics right now is thinking about COVID and the ways it's changing what we do and the ways it's changing medicine and our whole society. And it's why I can't leave the house anymore. But I want you to maybe tell us a little bit about what, for you at least, it means to be a bioethicist during the pandemic. Hmm. Well, so you're right, of course. Uh, everyone got really busy really fast um, because I think there, there were a fair number of people who for whom ethics was a side consideration. Nice to have not necessarily of critical importance every day. And all of a sudden, when they were struck with the, with the idea that we might have to ration ventilators, 
suddenly they were calling bioethicists and saying, look, we need some support here because we're going to have to make some very painful decisions potentially, and, um, and we want you guys involved. So I think a lot of us got very, very busy. And busy on, you know, we do work that is inherently controversial, right? So everything that people in bioethics do is going to be controversial. There's, you know, I've often said, if, if it's not controversial, it's actually not an ethical issue anymore, right? If everyone already agrees what the right thing to do is, and all you're haggling over is how to do it, that's no longer an ethical dilemma. It, it may be some other kind of dilemma, but you're not going to call an ethicist over that. So if they're, if they're calling you for something, it's because it's controversial. So we're used to dealing at this, you know, in this difficult areas. But I don't know about you guys, like this is the first time in my life that I have had trouble sleeping. I've never had trouble sleeping. You know, uh, like it's a joke in my family that I can fall asleep anywhere, anytime. And uh, in March, when we were putting together our, you know, triage protocols, I would toss and turn and wake up repeatedly all night long. And so it has been, an, it's been a very a different kind of intense, controversial stuff that we're dealing with than what we normally do, I think. You know, fortunately for me in Colorado, we actually haven't gotten to a point where things have run out, but um, but it still has been very stressful. And I think for folks in New York and Florida and Texas, um, you know, Georgia, Detroit, um, there are a bunch of places, California, Seattle, where we're um, yeah, where I just think this has been a, a remarkable time to be, to to be the person that people turn to and say, "Hey, aren't you trained to make uh, the worst possible decision where there is no right answer?" Right, yeah. and the and the reality, of course, is that we are not. No one's trained for that, and and the other hard reality is that even when we um, give our very best advice, it turns out it's really hard to take that advice. One thing that I found interesting about the, the pandemic and also like the media coverage of possible ventilator shortages and decision-making allocation of medications and vaccines is I think by and large, people now understand what a, a medical ethical question is or a bioethics question. And I've had you know a, an aunt that I haven't talked to in years text me out of the blue, hey, isn't this what you do? Yeah. Yeah, I think there are a bunch of, uh, there's a lot of new vocabulary, right, for the general public. It wasn't that long ago that, you know, the phrase social distancing, no one would have known what you were talking about. Um, or not, herd immunity. Herd right? immunity, right. I, I like the social distancing example, by the way, because um, it's it was a term of art for, you know, decades. It's one of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that you use when you are trying to stem a pandemic and you don't have, you know, a drug that will treat the disease. So you have to use these non-pharmaceutical interventions, one of which is school closures and quarantine and isolation and all these, this little bundle of things that are all called social distancing. And we call them social distancing without really thinking about it. And the minute that phrase got into the general public, people were like, it's a terrible phrase. <laughs> what are you talking about? Social, you're talking about staying six feet apart. Say that, say physical yeah. distancing. So I think, yeah. I think it's fascinating because of course the minute someone said that to me for the first time, I was like, Oh, you're right. That's a terrible <laughs> phrase. Yeah. We, we're yeah. trying to stay socially cohesive. In fact, while we, 
right. pass through this time, right? We want people to come together and be socially bonded in, in this difficult time so that we can all work together in the same direction and, and get through this as best we can together. And the words, the phrase social distancing is a terrible phrase. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have moved away from it and are now saying, you're right, physical distancing, that's what we're talking about. We want you to be socially together, but stay physically distant. That's right. <laughs> I totally hadn't thought of that because, I mean, the problem with it is if I were truly socially distancing, I wouldn't have to be on Zoom so much, <laughs> right? <laughs> which would be great, but that's not really what we're doing. And you'd get off Facebook and yeah. <laughs> turn off Twitter. <laughs> that's right. So maybe that would, be a, that would be a pretty healthy uh, recommendation for a lot of people, though, I think. It's a little, a little social media distancing. Yeah. As you think about you know, looking forward... After the pandemic, what are some of the emerging or interesting uh, bioethics questions that you think are going to be on the horizon or something that we should think about? Well, I think in some ways we will go back to the things that were preoccupying us um, before the pandemic, right? So we'll go to issues of you know advanced technologies, artificial intelligence, and what we are learning in the pandemic will influence those conversations. So uh, there's a terrific piece today uh, or yesterday in the Health Affairs blog about using artificial intelligence to predict mortality in the pandemic. But, you know, those AI algorithms are not exactly unique to the pandemic. Is it a good idea to get increasingly precise? Well, is it a good idea to get increasingly precise estimations of what your likely mortality is over the next you know, six months, year, two years, and what are appropriate uses of that information, assuming that that is going to happen. I mean, the reality is with the, with the kind of data we have and the analytic capabilities we have, we should be much better at medical prognosis in a few years than we are right now. And how are we going to use that information? Because, you know, the information isn't going to stop. So the, so the question for us is, as sort of policy people is what are appropriate and inappropriate uses of that information? Who gets access to it and what can they use it for? And I think, you know, what we are learning from the pandemic is going to influence that because we have started to create these AI algorithms within the pandemic as part of the triage protocols because you want to make sure you're using your resources in a way that, you know, saves people who are savable and you don't use resources, you know, for folks who aren't going to make it anyways. That's a, it's a hard, hard thing to talk about, but that is driving research that is going to, you know, have a life on beyond the pandemic. I think the other things that we're learning from the pandemic that will have some, you know, life afterwards are, are around issues of research. One of the fascinating things that we're trying to figure out is how do we stratify and prioritize the many excellent research protocols that are coming through the, you know, the doors of the IRB because they're ethically acceptable protocols. They're, you know, good protocols, but you can't do them all because you don't have that many patients. And that's been sort of a novel thing for at least for some of our IRBs to say, well, should we be looking not only at whether this protocol is an ethical protocol and worthy of moving forward, but what does this protocol look like in comparison to the other protocols? And if we're doing these others, should we also, you know, should we put a hold on this one until these others are complete? There's not really infrastructure for making those decisions. They're, they're resource allocation decisions as well. Who's the gatekeeper for that? Is that the IRB? 
Well, at our institution, no, it's a it's a separate entity now for exactly that reason. And it's just for COVID. But I don't think there's any reason why, you know, this should be limited to COVID. If you if it turns out you've got three protocols for a similar condition, you probably ought to be thinking about how do you prioritize those protocols? Yeah, I think there's going to be, you know, the other thing, this is so obvious, I guess we haven't talked about it yet, but all the equity issues that the pandemic has just shown a floodlight on uh, systemic inequities and structural, you know, racism and other barriers to care and to factors that lead to worse outcomes, all of which for folks who've been doing work in health disparities for decades is completely not surprising, but it's like the people in the back row just just woke up and realized that this is a real, you know, these are real issues. And I don't think that that's going to go away at this point. It's like the hundredth monkey kind of phenomenon. You know, once everyone acknowledges this is a major problem, you can't just ignore it anymore. Once you, once you have seen it, you can't unsee it. And that reminds me of a, a tweet actually from Jason Wasserman over at Oakland University, who's a friend of Devin and I's. It says, I'm tired of these quote, COVID exposes blank articles. COVID has not exposed inequality or health systems. If you were even remotely paying attention, they were always there. The real headline should be, quote, COVID undercuts deliberate ignorance of blank, insert phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm sympathetic to that. And I think it also reflects, you know, someone who was not ignorant. And deliberate ignorance might be a fact for some people. It may be that, you know, people intentionally ignored things. But I think there's also, you know, just a lot of people for whom they have busy lives and they don't think about health policy all the time. And it's only in this in the context of a pandemic that they read the articles in the newspaper or in Newsweek or on Facebook or wherever they get their information. I guess I wouldn't be as I wouldn't be quite as cynical about quite as many people. I think there are people for whom it was deliberate indifference, but there are probably others for whom it's not deliberate indifference. It's just they're living their lives. Well, Jason is very, very cynical. So I hope he listens to this and he heard <laughs> us say that. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, my guess is he's talking more about health healthcare professionals. But yeah, I think there's this huge public who does not work in healthcare and has just never thought about these things and has to now grapple with. It's almost like because of COVID, everyone has to be thinking about like you said, bioethics issues, but also health disparities. When we think about all the nursing homes and um, convalescent homes where people are getting really sick, where people congregate. And when you hear about so many people dying, you just, you think about these things differently when you hear about the populations that are truly the most affected by COVID. And I think hopefully it's mm -hmm. making us all more sensitive to how those things have always been true. Yeah. You know, this is maybe a clinician thing. I assume that most people, most of the time, would rather be thinking about almost anything other than healthcare. <laughs> yeah. Right? That mo most people, like, they do not want to spend their time thinking about healthcare. It's, it's a depressing subject for most people. It, you know, it makes them scared about getting sick and dying. They would rather not think about it. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we always worried and still worry about giving people a bunch of choices for their health insurance, which I think sounds like a wonderful idea if you're a health policy geek, because you love thinking about health care and choices and incentives. And But really, for most people, 
you know, if they spend five minutes picking their health plan out of the, you know, eight health plans that they get offered, and I'm assuming they're getting offered eight health plans, that's a, that's a lot of time spent thinking about things that are generally not very pleasant to think about, like what diseases might I get in the next year? What disease might my child get in the next year, right? Most people don't want to think about that. I guess this is a little bit paternalistic to to assume that, but I, I just think it's human nature to not want to spend your time thinking about unpleasant things and getting sick is unpleasant. Which is why we're all so strange that we want to it exist is. in this world. <laughs> It reminds me too, when I started my latest job, they offered me two separate health plans and I spent hours researching just to figure out which one of them would be most appropriate for me and my family. And it was impossibly difficult. So good Lord, if I had <laughs> With had your eight, PhD, yeah, right. <laughs> I have PhD in this stuff and it was still like, and there were just two and they were still so complicated. Good Lord, never give me eight. <laughs> yeah, well, so you can see why people will just check a box. Like once you've signed up for a plan, you're not going to change that plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Most people do not change. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about the podcast that you host? Sure. So uh, we do a podcast called Hard Call. And Hard Call is a narrative podcast. So we tell stories. And at the end of each episode, someone in the story is faced with a very difficult decision. And until this point, we've actually done stories about two individual patients, uh, both real people who ended up facing a series of difficult choices. And this year, we're just about to come out with a series on COVID, which is more around health policy policy issues that folks are facing in the COVID pandemic. Great. I've heard your past season. It was wonderful. So everybody should tune in to this. I'm sure it'll be equally as good. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing our theme song. For show notes and more episodes, go to bioethicsforthepeople.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So Matt, just so you know, this is uh, just going to be audio. Yeah. So you can pick your nose or whatever you want. We'll point it out though, I still in have, the audio. I, yeah, <laughs> in the audio, you'll, you'll still say, well, picking his nose. <laughs>